Today is a special day. While many around the world are celebrating Cinco de Mayo, this day is also recognized as the National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Native Women. When I figured this out, I decided it would be the perfect time for me to talk about something a lot of you have been asking about for some time. Cases involving indigenous women are far too often overlooked or forgotten. And while Kaylee Elise left large shoes to fill, I hope I can do her justice. This was something she covered on a very regular basis, and I suppose we will too from this point forward. With that said, here are three of their stories. We begin with JC's case simply because there is next to nothing about her online and that only goes to solidify the point I made before about these women being ignored or forgotten. To start, JC was 31 at the time of her disappearance. She bore dark brown hair, brown eyes, and went by the nickname Hope. She also sometimes went by her middle name, Kara. It was the 7th of April, 2008, in Lawson, Oklahoma, when a sibling dropped her off outside of Kmart. She was supposed to head in and begin her orientation, but she was never seen after that. And that is all we know. I have found no news articles, no news coverage, only a Charlie Project page and a Facebook group that has been inactive since September of 2019. Before the group went inactive, though, they seemed to have been conducting what they called a walk to remember for missing and murdered indigenous women at the Comanche Nation of Oklahoma. Signs with Kara's name were held up with the message, No More Missing Sisters. Unfortunately, Kara is still missing, and unless someone comes forward, this case seems to be at a complete standstill. If you do believe you have any information or tips that you believe can help the police in this case, don't hesitate to contact them. You can call the Lawton Police at 580-581-3240. Tina's life never seemed to be an easy one. Starting around the age of five, she was raised mostly by her great-aunt. The two lived at the Sag King First Nation, just northeast of Winnipeg, Manitoba. Tina's father, a man named Eugene, had his life taken when she was only 12 years old. The two men who took his life made it off with manslaughter charges rather than murder. Tina was eligible for grief counseling, but for reasons unknown, she did not receive any. Her great-aunt notes that it was around this time Tina began to struggle in school, began acting out, and in July of 2014, she left home and went to Winnipeg to see her mother. On the 31st of that month, she was reported missing to the Winnipeg Police Service. It was not long after this that her aunt reported that Tina had stayed with her during the August long weekend. 
On the 5th of August, Tina contacted her child and family services worker where she was subsequently picked up by police and the CFS. No one is 100% sure what took place over the 5th to the 8th, but during the time, she was still considered missing. At some point, they must have let her go, as in the early morning hours of August 8th, she was seen in a truck, allegedly under the influence of alcohol. In an article published online in February of 2018, the author details what took place on the 8th. According to the article, video footage of her entering a parkade was shown in court during the trial of Raymond Cormier, a man accused of taking her life. Tina was seen walking in and falling asleep between two cars behind a building at the University of Winnipeg before a security guard found her. He described her as confused and said there were either mosquito bites or cigarette burns on her legs that looked very bad. An ambulance was called to pick her up and she was taken to the hospital. Five hours before this, around five in the morning, she was seen, as we said, in a truck with a man named Richard Muhammad. He'd been pulled over for driving without a license. They asked Tina her name, who was in the passenger seat, ran it through their database, and somehow missed that she'd been reported missing. Richard, the man driving, claimed he'd picked her up and asked if she wanted to party, unaware of her age. Tina told the officers she was staying at a hotel nearby used by the CFS, and they allowed her to leave. The officers were suspended for their actions and left the force not long after. Other reports from that trial include those from Tina's boyfriend, Cody Mason. He claimed the two knew Richard, and he even gave them a place to stay for a short time. He also said Richard would give Tina gabapitin, and they all smoked marijuana and drank regularly for a number of weeks that summer. After being treated at the hospital on the 8th, she was checked into a hotel but left the following day and was reported missing again on the 9th. One of the last people known to see her alive, this was on the 7th, the day before Tina's hospital visit, was a young woman who was being called Katrina. Her identity is being withheld. Katrina, who was 18, met Tina when she was on her way to a convenience store. The two, both being involved with the CFS, bonded immediately and spent some days together. As a matter of fact, Katrina was there the day Tina got into a truck with Richard and was the one who told the police to make sure she was okay. More and more time passed and Katrina eventually lost sight of Tina. They came together again around 3 a.m. on the 9th of August when a man came up to both of them and asked for sexual favors in return for cash. Tina agreed and said she'd be back in 15 minutes. Katrina claimed to have waited for 30 minutes and even went to strangers to ask for help finding her friend, but Tina had gone missing once again. Eight days later, her body was found in the Red River, wrapped in a plastic duvet cover, weighed down with rocks. Tina, only 15 years old, had her life taken and before that, barely had a life to begin with. She never had a chance to be a kid. An article from March of 2019 explains very well that even Tina's grandfather was subject to blatant racism and disregard. Her father's father was a survivor of residential schools, and his violence and alcoholism saw Tina's dad flee his reserve at the age of 12 to fend for himself on the streets of Winnipeg, where he too began to struggle with alcoholism. 
The article also explains that Tina's mother's relationships were plagued with addiction, abuse, and manipulation, all of which poured into Tina's life as well. Tina's case is easily one of the most tragic, heartbreaking, and infuriating cases I've ever looked into. Not only was Tina ignored and left in the hands of someone well and capable of taking her life, she was simply, quote, placed into a hotel overnight. No one was there to watch her. No one cared. I apologize if I seem to be less put together as I am with other videos, but this case has really kicked me in the gut. The man we mentioned before was accused of taking Tina's life, but was found not guilty on February 22nd. 2018. Raymond's lawyer argued that there was no evidence or eyewitnesses that could link Raymond to the crime, and furthermore, the COD has yet to be determined. Which I can say, I mean, an injustice done to our people again today. I just hope that people that are watching worldwide see what we have to deal with every day. Despite this, it's very obvious Tina had her life taken via a very malicious act. I can't say whether or not it was Raymond, as the court found him not guilty, but whoever took her life is out there, and her and her family deserve answers. If you believe you have anything that can help police put someone behind bars, don't hesitate to report it. You can contact the Winnipeg Police at 204 789 Seven, seven. Amber was 20 years old, living in Nisku in Alberta, Canada, when she went missing. It was the 18th of August, 2010. It was the day before that that Amber flew to Edmonton with her 14-month-old son and a close female friend for a short weekend trip. They had plans to stay outside the city to save money and head into Edmonton the following morning, that being the 18th. For some reason, it isn't clear online, Amber decided to head into Edmonton that night and hitchhiked the way there. When Amber hadn't returned the following day, her friend got in contact with Amber's mother, Tootsie, who called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. From the beginning, it seems if Amber's abduction wasn't taken seriously, and the RCMP would even go on to apologize for mishandling this case. It starts with them telling Tootsie that she would need to wait 24 hours before she could report Amber missing, even though there was no policy in hand to warrant this. They simply told Amber's mother that Amber was most likely out partying and would return soon. Two years later, Amber had not turned up, and a phone call was released that set in stone she'd definitely been abducted. The full call wasn't released, but a minute-long clip of it was. In the call, you can hear Amber repeatedly asking, Where are we going, and where are you taking me? The man in the car continually tries to convince her he's only taking back roads and will get her to where she wants to go. It's believed the man in this recording is the man who took Amber's life. I am about to play the audio clip, and while it isn't disturbing, it is what many believe Amber's last moments. And if that is something that would bother you, skip ahead to the timestamp that you see on screen right now. Where are we by? We're just heading south 
south of uh, Beaumont, or north of Beaumont. We're heading north of Beaumont. Yo, where are we going? No, this is a... Are you f***ing kidding me? You better not take, you better not take me anywhere I don't want to go. I want to go into the city. Jeez. Yo, we're not going into the city, are we? No, we're not. Then where the f*** are these roads going to? 50th Street. 50th Street, are you sure? Absolutely. Yo, where are we going? 50th Street. It wouldn't be until the 1st of September 2012 that two individuals on horseback discovered a skull in a farmer's field near Leduc County. In an article published by Hugh and Cry, it noted that the place of discovery was south of the motel she was staying at, the opposite direction she'd wanted to go. Furthermore, the full call was around 17 minutes long. Police believe this is about how long the ride would have taken. If it wasn't for Amber being on the phone with her brother, who was incarcerated at the time, the call would have never seen the light of day. In the same article, it was reported that two women came forward to identify the voice in the call, both of them calling onto the same man, but RCMP have said the man is no longer a person of interest. Amber's family filed a complaint against the RCMP for a less than satisfactory investigation. The first instance was, of course, waiting 24 hours to report Amber missing, despite there being no reason or police saying to do so. Along with this, they even removed Amber from the missing persons list the same year she was placed on, a decision that took Amber's mother months to reverse. Finally, in September of last year, Amber's family proposed exhuming Amber's remains for DNA testing. They said before that they were always suspicious about how quickly the skull was identified, noting that some autopsies take a week or even months, but Amber was identified the same day, supposedly off of dental records. Amber's mother and brother, Paul, stated they'd seen discrepancies in the record, noting there were dental fillings that didn't seem to line up. This leads many to believe that the RCMP simply said this was Amber dismissively as a way to move on. Given their record in this case, it seems plausible. It wouldn't be until July of 2019, five years after the family filed a complaint to the RCMP that they received a response in a 110-page report. An article published in the National Post quoted Deputy Commissioner Curtis Zablocki saying, I fully acknowledge that in the early days of our investigation into Amber's disappearance that it required a better sense of urgency and care. Our Leduc Detachment's missing person investigation was not our best work and was not in line with our established practices, procedures, and guidelines. At the beginning of this investigation, the RCMP was not the police service we strive to be. On behalf of the RCMP, I am truly sorry. The most recent update to this case came in the form of a tip from a young man who claimed his father was the man on the phone call recording. It was January 20th of this year that the tip came in, and as of the 24th of January, the RCMP stated that they are actively looking into it. 
If you believe you have any information that can help police, or if you firmly believe you know who this voice belongs to, call the Edmonton Police Crime Stoppers line and report it. You can do so at 1-800-222-8477. I want to thank everyone who took their time to listen over on Anchor or watch over here on YouTube. All of these cases are heartbreaking and infuriating. I was blissfully unaware of what indigenous men and women dealt with, and now that I'm aware, I'll make it a goal to cover these cases much more often. It really pains me to read about the cases, but to read about the blatant dismissiveness and poor work done by authorities is hard to swallow. My heart goes out to all the families and friends affected in these cases, and I hope like hell you all get answers soon. Also, I'd like to thank the wonderful people on screen now. These are all the patrons and channel members who support the channel monthly. If you decide to as well, you can get access to videos a day before they go live to everyone else. Thanks again to everyone for watching. Take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and as always, stay safe out there.